Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to Inside Politics, the politics podcast from the Irish Times. This is Pat Leahy sitting in for this first podcast of 2023 for Hugh Linehan, who has not yet returned from his annual Christmas pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Joining me this bright January morning are our political reporter Jack Horgan-Jones and columnist Jared Howlin. Gentlemen, hello, Happy New Year. Jack, you had Santa in your house. Did he do the business? He certainly did, yeah. No, he delivered in spades and there were magical memories formed on Christmas morning with uh, excited little girls coming down the stairs and asking with bated breath, did he come? And of course he had come. But um, the slightly less magical side of Christmas for the parents of young children is one which, which is less commented on which is, of course, the 10 days of back-to-back parenting. So I welcome with, with open arms the, <laughs> the return of, of the workplace and also, of course, the, uh, the return of full-time childcare. Magic and all as it is, it does have a bit of stuff. <laughs> Jerry, was uh, everyone in the Howland household good this year? Oh, we were immaculate. Um, <laughs> uh, but we, we were adults and we were sort of uh, in, indulging in alcoholic beverages. Moderately, I hasten to add, yes. And Christmas puddings and the like. So we're all larger people now. Mm, I practice... Uh, uh, not entirely incompatible with parenting of young children in uh, my own experience. But uh, anyway... Some would say a requirement. In, in fact, possibly intrinsically linked. Anyway, today is the first cabinet meeting of the year and the first substantive meeting, I think it's fair to say, chaired by the new Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar. We will go on in a while to talk about how Mr Varadkar's style and perhaps substance, though I think that's up for debate, might be different from that of his predecessor, Michal Martin. But for now, let's stick with some of the issues that are before ministers when they meet in government buildings today. The agenda, as far as we can tell, will not be a lengthy one, but it will be a heavy one. And Jack, you're writing about one of the issues that whether it's formally on the cabinet agenda or not this morning, I don't know, but it's certainly likely to be discussed by ministers and and you had our lead story this morning about it. Um, it's about refugee accommodation and maybe you might bring us through the detail that you had this morning. Yes, Pat, so the, the agenda itself, the uh, the official agenda is kind of largely housekeeping. There's nothing massively of interest on there. Some new powers uh, that would accrue to the Minister for the Environment in an emergency, um, giving him kind of, you know, fiat authority over the oil market is about the most interesting thing, but we don't think that emergency is likely to occur anytime soon, if at all. So I really think that the, the, the meat of Cabinet today, as you say yourself, will be focused on two issues that aren't before the Cabinet, at least for a decision in any meaningful sense, Today, but will play an important part um, not only to the to this meeting, but to the wider backdrop of public policy formation and, and politics throughout 2023. The first of which is a is a topic that we cover in our lead story this morning, which is that of uh, immigration. Um, the, the, the refugee crisis uh, from both the war in Ukraine and also the uh, considerable and perhaps permanent uptick in the numbers of people seeking international protection in the country from other jurisdictions. And the issue of how, where 
um, and 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 how to to accommodate them. Um, because we have gotten our hands on a, a briefing document uh, that was drawn up by uh, the Department of Integration for the incoming Minister of State, the Green Party's Joe O'Brien, who, following the ministerial reshuffle in December, will be taking up a greater role in integration and effectively coming on board to give his uh, party colleague Rod- Roderick O'Gorman a hand in managing what has become one of the most kind of sprawling briefs within uh, the coalition's ambit, that of that of accommodation. And those warnings are pretty hairy. Just run through those warnings that are in that document. It's nasty stuff and it seems to be at every kind of level. It seems to be both in the immediate term where there's, there, there, there's warnings of... Um, you know, an immediate shortfall in uh, beds being available for those coming into the coming into the the country. But I think perhaps most concerningly, there are uh, there are more there are more kind of pertinent questions about uh, the model that has been pressed into action um, over the last ten or eleven months since the the crisis really uh, got into gear following the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and it, it talks about uh, the fact that. There, it is. It is kind of an unsuitable system, and that's the word that they actually use. Um, there needs to be a significant acceleration in cross government efforts uh, to find new accommodation because the system, the present provision model, is unsustainable. As oversight of accommodation at this scale and pace entails many challenges, and they go on to to list a whole range of things, whether it's the the fact that, you know, accommodation standards and the quality of accommodation is not proactively inspected and only done on a reactive basis when problems emerge, but perhaps more pertinently when it comes to the, the political scene, the continued concentration of available accommodation in particular areas. We know that there's a lot in the kind of tourist-heavy and hotel-heavy counties of Dublin, uh, Kerry, Donegal and similar kind of areas and the associated pressures that brings to bear on service provision in those areas, things like health and education. And it also talks about just given the, the pace at which this is, has developed and given the, the scale and, and the, the, uh, the flow that is coming into the country, the numbers of people that are coming into the country, the fact that they haven't been able to get ahead of this and they talk, and they talk very openly about the deficiencies in, in, in community consultation. And we saw that again, raising its head and coming to the fore in the, towards the tail end of last year, most notably around um, the protests in East Wall, but also elsewhere, uh, the, the, um, the, the issues at Kill Equestrian Centre and elsewhere we saw protests against um, the, the proposed uh, siting of, of accommodation for either international protection applicants or beneficiaries of temporary protection, which is the, the Ukrainian uh, refugees. So I think that this is, it, it's interesting to see this being teased out. Um, it's interesting being to see it being talked about so bluntly. I mean, they talk about, you know, the, the risk of um, the whole policy becoming a hostage to the far right if uh, they can't get ahead of it. And I think it's clear that it's going to be one of the kind of potentially not just a vexed and tricky policy problem, but also, you know, one of the kind of politically uh, divisive issues of 2023 as well. I mean, there's two related problems, isn't there? There is the immediate shortage of accommodation and the foreseeable shortage of accommodation for the coming months. But also there's then securing the uh, ascent of communities in which new accommodation is to be located. And, and that's a thornier problem in some respects because it brings in all sorts of non-logistical variables, uh, as it were. Yeah, and given the numbers of people uh, coming into the country, um, it's 
And again, I'm quoting from the document here. They say it's inevitable that new reception centres will have to be opened, quote, across the country and for the foreseeable future. So this is something that can't be kind of neatly confined to, to one area or one jurisdiction. It, it, it seems that, you know, the the exigencies of the, the circumstance that the state finds itself in dictate that they will have to look at all sorts of different settings and, um, you know, things like that conversion of an office block down in East Wall, just down the road from me here, into refugee accommodation. I, you know, the expectation is that that pops up and crops up and becomes a, a, a localised uh, political issue with national consequences up and down the country. Um, one of the interesting questions as well that emerges is uh, whether this will bleed across into the political acceptability or, you know, community accepted acceptance of things like modular homes, which are, to some extent the kind of cavalry coming over the hill, even though in aggregate form, I'm not sure they're going to provide that many beds, but certainly they're the solution. It's pretty slow they're cavalry. Pretty, though, pretty slow cavalry. Like, pretty, the horses are lame. Old horses, yeah. Um, but like it's it, whenever the government is, you know, challenged on the fact that it has basically just opened up booking.com and reserved every hotel room in the country that's available. And that's been the kind of sum total of their response um, to, to the refugee crisis. They say, ah, yes, but we're bringing modular, modular housing on stream next year. It looks like they're concerned about the social acceptability of modular housing for um, immigrant or refugee populations as well, because they talk openly about uh, there being a backlash and about having to revisit some of the sites uh, that have been pegged for um, for modular or rapid build housing because they acknowledge that they w- it will not work out because of problems either with the site or with the communities within which the units will be located. So it, it's clear that, you know, there's a massive headwinds. There are a series of massive headwinds facing the government on this front as we head into 2023, which stem beyond the logistical and, and bounce it firmly into into the political as well. Jared, what's your view of this? Well, just to briefly... Um Touch on another issue, perhaps the more, most profound uh, cabinet decision has already been taken before cabinet meets this morning, which was that ministers have to leave their mobile phones outside. Uh, apparently these machines can be infested with spyware, uh, but uh, I have a suspicion that some of those uh, cabinet ministers did shorthand typing in their youth, because some of them seem to have the knack of texting under the table out with remarkable clarity. And Taoiseach Varadkar's decision, I don't know what he bases his fear or supposition on, that they have to leave the mobile phones outside the door, I think is, is, is telling. Even as we speak, Jerry, it is possible that our phones are being monitored by Chinese military intelligence. Well, let's hope that we would be nobody if they weren't. <laughs> it would be the ultimate insult if we're not on that long list. But this goes back in relation to the Department of Children and Integration. This goes back to last spring. Uh, when the Ukraine issue first emerged and the Department of Housing could not, would not be uh, corralled into some whole-of-government approach. Uh, the, If you'll excuse the pun, the Department of Children was left holding the baby for months and it was only in the autumn after the, the summer uh, passed and the summer passing meant two things. Numbers were continuously and exorbitantly rising and uh, things were obviously going to become more difficult. Children had to go back to school. Children uh, from Ukraine who'd never been in school here had to be found school for the very first time and we have come from there to here. So the government is at least nine months behind the sort of integrated approach that it was absolutely clear on day one that would be necessary, but because of internal jockeying between departments, um, simply didn't happen. And that's a weakness that has to be called out. In relation to where we are now, I think there's a recognition um, that a much more integrated approach is is required, and what can be done is strictly limited. Uh, And the problem uh, with the... um, 
booking.com approach is, of course, it hurts the tourism industry because tourism succeeds on having a range of accommodations at varying price points for a whole raft of different different visitors. Uh, and that is a, an issue for tourism in communities uh, where a, a wide variety of people uh, depend on the income. That's not a case with East Wall. In relation to getting the assent of communities, uh, that can't, that we cannot go in, down that cul-de-sac. On the one hand, you want to really try harder to build as much information, as much support as you possibly can, because it makes absolute sense to try your level best to do that. But to get the assent of communities, no, none of us can be given the right to choose who, who our neighbours are. And there will come points where these matters have to be faced up to and perhaps with, with some difficulty. I mean, the last time we were at an impasse like this was about 2003, and the result was the citizenship referendum in 2004. Uh, there's no uh, simple solution or uh, one-size-fits-all solution now. This is a much more complex uh, issue. And the only thing that this country is capable of over the next year to 18 months is, is do incremental things to try and make sure things don't get much worse and to try and hold the sense of community together. Because if we have more people who are more welcoming than negative people who are against, I think that would be the glue that holds the society together over the next 18 months to two years when it's hard to see things getting much better. But in some, in some respects, the concerns of communities into which perhaps significant numbers of, uh, of asylum seekers or refugees in the war are going to be, uh, are going to be moved are, are quite rational. You know, many of them are, and we, you know, there, there's quite a vocal uh, set of people in the East Wall who worry about the pressure on health services, education and so forth, who are avowedly not against the, uh, uh, the, the centre there for racist reasons. That's what they say, uh, but they are concerned about uh, about public services. And this is in an area, a district, which has one of the highest uh, ratios of farm-born people in the country. Yeah, well, I, I've lived in the North Inner City for 30 years, and that highest ratio of foreign-born people in the country has been an enormous source of positivity in the community to the quality of life just to the, the experience of, 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 living, of living in the area. But it does bring difficulties. And uh, some of the social services here are, are to put it mildly, very stretched. Uh, the Matter Hospital, which is the local hospital in the north inner city, is very stretched. We're being told in the last day or two, do not come to the, to the A&E. And then you have the underlying housing, housing situation. Cheap rents in the north inner city are, are simply no longer available. Um, and what should be cheap, because it's appalling, uh, is, is now becoming increasingly un, un, unaffordable. And a walk up and down the North Circular Road of an evening when the lights are on and you can catch glimpses of the quality of life in, inside some of these what are effectively tenements gives you a sense of that. So all of this is true. The question is, how do you do incremental things to try and stop it getting much worse while at the same time, over time, and by time I mean a year or two, there's no quick fix to this in a couple of months and try and hold the glue of the society together in what is a largely uh, positive way uh, while all of these strains and stresses are being felt.
And what's your view uh, of this concern that is that many people have been writing about and is flagged in the uh, documents that Jack referred to in this morning's story about the threat from the far right? I, I have an idea that, in fact, the, the, the real threat to the government from, from this, and no one disputes the attractiveness of the issue or the opportunity it presents for, you know, what are so far anyway, very small proto-political groupings, but that the real threat to the government is that mainstream, more mainstream voters conclude that it is incompetent at managing these issues. It can't, it has a an asylum process that is uh, very long drawn out, that can see people waiting years for a decision. Uh, it, um, it, it pledged to accept unlimited amounts of Ukrainian refugees for the best of reasons, but without then putting in place last year uh, the sort of processes that might have enabled it to accommodate them with a higher degree of, of, of comfort. So in fact, you know, the government doesn't face a political threat so much from the far right. What it faces is a threat to its own uh, reputation for efficiency. Yeah, and the mainstream is moving slightly left in small incremental steps over a very long time. It began the economic shock, the aftermath of the election in 2011. It continued after 2016 because we have a housing crisis. It's continuing now because that housing crisis is accentuating into a refugee uh, crisis and, and a health crisis this winter. And all of that adds to the unbelievability the lack of confidence with a small c in, in, in the broad political mainstream to do or to deliver or to be believed. And that is why the centre is shrinking. And whether uh, Leo Varadkar, whether there's some strategy that this government can reach uh, in the next two years to break out of, of that tightening noose remains to be seen. But as of now, the noose is tightening on the centre. And Jack, the other big issue, I suppose, that Cabinet is likely to discuss this morning the uh, the squeeze or the overcrowding in hospital emergency departments. I mean, part of that is a sort of a competence question as well, isn't it? Ministers have been warning, including the Minister of Health, been warning for months that this was coming down, uh, coming down the tracks. And I suppose we should say, you know, that in the neighbouring jurisdiction, they're seeing very severe challenges on their health service as well. But that won't save the government from accusations of culpability here. Absolutely. I mean, um, there's there's an element of after COVID that kind of nature, nature is healing. We have the return of the, the migratory January trolley crisis, um, except it seems to be accentuated and and made a lot more difficult by COVID because, and there's no point in going all the way through it, but just briefly, we have an upsurge of, of various different respiratory viral infections, of, of which COVID is one, and that's putting unprecedented pressure on uh, the healthcare system. And I think that the, the risk here for the government, um, as you say, is that it, it, it ends up looking like it is kind of narrating a crisis and describing a crisis as opposed to doing something to fundamentally address it. And that brings the, the, the focus back on its ability or more pertinently inability to solve chronic problems, which is the ongoing soft underbelly of, of this coalition, you know, good at, good at crises, bad at solving longstanding uh, problems. And I think that you see that 
kind of in in action and in play both in the healthcare space um and um, with the with the refugee crisis that we talked about where it's kind of jumping the shark it's it's going from being an emergency crisis that you can kind of address just by deploying huge amounts of capital because the the, the state's balance sheet is in a position to do that at the moment and becoming like a, a long-standing chronic policy problem which requires very uh sophisticated uh, solutions to be developed and 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 it's on that front that they fall down so instead of proving itself to be capable both of confronting emergency and um you know managing that response as it becomes uh something that's more entrenched and embedded um you know they they end up having a, a kind of third uh a third leg to the to the the crisis stool so you have both health and housing and now also uh, you know the, the the refugee accommodation crisis, which kind of inter, inter intersects with the the other two. You know the 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 aspects of 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 housing provision and of health provision for those new populations, um, and you get these kind of overlapping and intersecting crises, and it becomes a, a, a big issue for the government because, as I say, the risk is it becomes seen as um you know a bystander to these processes and and narrating its response and 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 uh, describing what's happening as opposed to addressing or solving it and and that is uh, a recipe for being seen as ultimately irrelevant or or at worst incompetent and isn't it a further problem that a lot of the measures that you might take uh, to address this current crisis have actually already been taken you know a lot of the uh, uh, you know, a lot of procedures have been cancelled, so there aren't schedule, schedule admissions, wards have been cleared out, they've tapped up some of the private hospitals for space. All of these things have actually already been done and you still have a thousand trolleys, a thousand patients on trolleys yesterday. Yeah, so you, and, and, and you, you risk being seen as just accepting that and, and describing it as I say. Um, and, you know, this will pass. This too shall pass. I mean, you know, there will be peaks to these waves of infection that, that we're going through and the trolley crisis will subside. But I think that the, the, the polling impact of it um, will be one to watch closely because the government kind of left 2022 on a bit of a high. Uh, it looked like Sinn Féin had kind of begun to plateau and it looked like certainly the, the fortunes of Fine Gael were were kind of improving. And a lot of that was being put down to the budget and, you know, the, the massive resources that have been put behind the, the cost of living measures. Um, and and if if there's a, a narrative that emerges that, you know, they haven't been as effective at, at solving these long-term problems and also that the cost of living dynamic comes back to bite again when the, with the next round of utility bills. Because while we have 200 euros coming our way, I think that, you know, given the cold snap that, that happened uh, in December and late November, um, people will nonetheless be be landed with with quite a surprise. So I think that the the risk is that the shine comes off all those interventions and all those measures before long, and um, that you know the the upturn in their polling fortunes uh, from their perspective anyway, uh, unfortunately, would seem could could seem to be uh, a temporary reversal as opposed to the beginning of a new trend, which I think is the kind of compact or the hope underlying their entire strategy, which is that people will begin to kind of regain faith in the mainstream and in, in the political mainstream's capacity to grapple with problems. And that by the time the next government or the next the next election rolls around, there will be a kind of binary choice between, you know, as, as they would say it, uh, you know, in, in the in the, the telling from British politics, you know, stability or chaos um, or, you know, more perhaps more appropriately, you know, mainstream or the risk, as they would uh, outline it, of of change. Jared, what do you think of that? The possibility of that narrative 
Yeah, so I, I could explain to you in theory, I'm not suggesting it will actually happen, but in theory I could explain to you how the government's position on health could improve, not in the short term but over the medium term. I could explain to you perhaps how on election day it had, would be able to demonstrate some cause in relation to progress on health, in relation to a consultant's contract were it to happen, in relation to the new elective hospitals which obviously won't be built or open but could be well in progress, in relation to a children's hospital which probably won't be open either but could be at the fitting out stage, and, and, and so on. On health, there is theoretically a plan. Uh, on housing, admittedly, there are plans too, but none, in my view, that are going to show progress or cause or affect the public move positively between now and election day. So uh, the problem is on housing, it's a race against time that is probably lost. And on health, it's a race against time that, you know, it's too soon to say. But all of these things against the background of the refugee situation and whatever else is coming, we haven't anticipated. We haven't spoken about the worldwide economy generally. We haven't spoken about Ireland's position on corporation tax. If any other factor went wrong on top of these other factors, then you're, you're, you're locking at a spiral uh, of, of issues uh, that are all downward for, for the government. There's also a possibility, Jack, that the COVID situation gets worse. And I know European governments are a bit spooked by what's happening in China at the moment. There's a meeting in Brussels today which will consider uh, imposing travel restrictions on people uh, travelling to the EU from uh, China, requiring that they have a negative COVID test before, uh, before they travel. But one country, Italy which, of course, was the epicentre of the very first outbreak of uh, COVID in Europe after a wave of travel there from, uh, from China, has already gone and imposed restrictions. Do you, do you think there's any uh, chance of assuming, uh, or, or in the event of the EU not imposing restrictions today, do you think that government in Dublin might be tempted to do so? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um... There was a little bit of this doing the rounds over uh, one of the days I was working on Christmas, which was just after uh, Georgia Maloney's government had introduced those um, those uh, restrictions, uh, the the pre pre flight testing requirement uh, for people arriving from China and talking to people across government. There was very much a sense that you know the the, the preference was to move in lockstep with uh, with Europe and uh, with the UK on this and. So I think that if something does come out of Brussels today, and and it looks like it may well do, uh, I think we should expect that you know we'll we'll toe the line on that. I have to confess that I'm a little puzzled by the the kind of stance in Europe on this because um, the the reason for imposing travel restrictions, um, at least across twenty twenty late twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, when we we're grappling with various variants while racing to vaccinate the country was to slow the advance of variants that could queer that pitch. Um, but, you know, the European Centers for Disease Control were out this morning, or at least reported to be out this morning, describing how the variants that are circulating in China are the same variants that we have here. Um, therefore, fundamentally, they present the same challenge. Uh, and, you know, we already have, or we're already awash with COVID. Um, it's, it's, it's presenting a healthcare problem insofar as it's as we already described, one of several respiratory viruses, but in and of itself is not presenting the same kind of challenge that it did in the first and acute phase of, of the crisis. So I'm a little puzzled that, you know, there is this political reaction as opposed to one that's informed by the ECDC or by the, the public health docs. Um, and I suspect that you are seeing to some extent the kind of ghost of that 2020 trauma, you know, and, and it's 
no surprise that it is uh, that that Italy is 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 kind of you know most inclined to act in this way. It's a question of the politicians' syllogism. You know, we, we must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must, we must do be this. seen to be doing something. You know, and and here is something that's done. And I suspect that what you know what will come out of Brussels today. I mean, I, I doubt it will change any of our lives fundamentally in a day-to-day sense. Perhaps if you're a, a frequent commuter to China, it may do. But, you know, there, there, there's talk about, I was reading it up on Politico this morning, you know, it being targeted at the most appropriate flights and airports and carried out in a coordinated way. So, you know, I'm not even sure it would necessarily be every flight or airport. So I think perhaps what we will see in full effect is the kind of Brussels, you know, fudgy consensus making machine hard at work and something that that, that looks like a, a meaningful solution that kind of gives, uh, you know, a political dividend or answers to the political question will emerge. And that, you know, the across the medium term, uh, because these things are cyclical, this current wave of COVID will, will likely subside along with the other respiratory viruses and we'll all, we'll all stop talking about it. Um, there, there's, there's my commentator's curse. We'll all be in lockdown <laughs> yeah. by March. <laughs> uh, um, just in the few minutes we have left, I just want to touch on a, co- a couple of other things. Um, the new Tisha Cleo Varadkar was reported yesterday making comments uh, that were sounded quite optimistic about the possibility, Jared, of a deal on the protocol he admitted that when they negotiated the protocol, that, you know, they may have been, I don't recall his exact words, but his, the sense of what he said was, oh, well, you know, we might have been a bit harsh, uh, a bit strict when um, we imposed the initial regulations of the protocol. He understands how unionists find them uh, offensive and objectionable, and uh, he's essentially sending out signals you know that he too is on board with this apparent push to uh, to find a solution. Uh, my, my own sense of it is that he's not talking there about a renegotiation of the terms of the protocol, which is how it was interpreted in some parts of the UK yesterday. But rather that he is signalling a willingness to uh, you know to ease the implementation of the protocol, which would be very much of a piece with what the EU was suggesting um, uh, before Christmas. Do you expect a deal on this in the coming weeks and months? And if if you do, do you think it would be enough to bring the Ulster Unionists on board, which is, I suppose, one of the key questions? So the answer is yes and no. Uh, yes, I do expect a deal, and no, it won't be enough to bring the Ulster Unionists on board. And that brings us back to the simple point where it's always going to come to is what is Rishi Sunak's headroom and what is his capacity. Uh, I I don't doubt but that he and people around him in the British government want a deal. Uh, The Irish government does, the EU does, a deal is doable. Um, In relation to Leo Varadkar's remarks, if you have to finesse them the day after, maybe they weren't the best choice of words in the first place. uh, I'm not sure the word mistake was was, was the best word to use, though I can see what he was trying to do. But this is always about an internal negotiation within the British Conservative Party, as everything around Brexit has been since since 2016. And where do the unionists fit into that, though, if that's an internal conversation within the Tories? Is it how how big of a, if I can lapse into the vernacular, how big of a shite do they give about what the unionists say? Is that what we're talking about? Well, this this has all come down to the decisive thing in the end is how much pull do they have on the ERG how united is the ERG within the Conservative Party what is their pull on Rishi Sunak but critically 
in relation to Rishi Sunak? What is his overall political position? What is, is he going up or down? Is he sinking or swimming uh, in March, April or May when, when something is about to happen? Uh, is he strong enough to take this stride, to do this? And then is he willing? There's every sign he's willing. The issue is, does he have the strength vis-a-vis his, the opponents in his party who will be encouraged negatively, I'm sure, by, by the DUP? I just don't see there's anything in the DUP in terms of the zero-sum politics that they are embedded in and have been embedded in for years and years to take, you know, some bold leadership step. It would require a revolution in their thinking and attitude and disposition, uh, which um, you don't be very optimistic to hope for. So does that mean that you don't think that the DUP will rejoin the power-sharing institutions even after another Uh, election, or will they accommodate... Well, that's a different that's a different issue uh because just because the deal is done over their heads doesn't mean they won't trot up to the trough uh to enjoy the positioning of northern ireland which of course is actually this is the paradox for unionism a very happy one of, of being well placed both within the united kingdom and within the european union uh you know this is this is, you know this is the sort of, of positioning for northern ireland that could copper fasten unionism for at least another generation as nominal unionism as your own series of, of in-depth polls showed as nominal protestantism unionism sort of ceases to be a majority there is clearly a pathway to cop professing unionism for another generation uh, but it lacks leadership in terms of the dup but what the dup could do is oppose everything that's going to happen and reconcile it themselves to the reality afterwards because they're, they're made for power not responsibility but if the responsibility is completely lifted off their shoulders and this is done and after the howling and squealing and protesting, uh, would they go into administration perhaps? But the problem for them then is the administration will have a, a Sinn Féin first minister and, and that is something they've never had to face up to before. And that's a bit of an unknowable really. It's an issue I guess we will come back to in the coming weeks and months. But Jack, just on a, on a, on a final point about... Varadkar making those comments. I mean, I think it's fair to say that those of us who have watched him over the years uh, would say he, he can tend to shoot from the hip sometimes, a little looser, certainly than the very cautious Mihon Martin might have been in his pronouncements on things that often gives us uh, in this business, you know, sharper news lines with which to work. Uh, but it, it is definitely a feature of his style, isn't it? And there will be a change of style. There will be a change of sort of presentation and, and there'll be a change in tone of the communications from government, won't they? I think absolutely, yeah. I mean, they, uh, myself and Simon Carswell wrote a, a long piece on, on Leo Varadkar before Christmas, kind of looking at these questions of style and temperament and outlook uh, and how those kind of intersect and and you know, form a political character and how that might play out, um, particularly in the context of the the current coalition government. I think there are several factors that, you know, will restrain him a little bit uh, compared to the the kind of the freewheeling tonnage that we saw who was, you know, um, you know, eager to uh, engage with soundbites and and views uh, on policy matters and kind of rest the news agenda in that way. Um, one is just the very nature of, of the office of Taoiseach. Um, I think that it breeds a certain kind of um, an extra conservatism in the occupant. Um, 
Well, it imbues your words with authority, I suppose, doesn't it? It does, exactly, yeah. So I think that means that you have to choose your words a little more carefully, even if your instinct is to shoot from the hip. Um, And then the second is that when you compare the kind of government that he now heads versus the kind of government that he headed uh, during his first term as Taoiseach, there are some fairly fundamental differences there. Um, When he was first Taoiseach, it was largely a Fine Gael cabinet uh, staffed by a few independence and you know once you more or less kept them on side with their uh, hobby horse issues be they at constituency level uh, like step aside garda station or at national level uh, like judicial reform i sound like i'm picking on shane, shane ross here i'm not but they're just the two issues that that sprung to mind you know you had a freer reign then to uh to 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 set policy at a national level on on other matters and um, it's it's fundamentally different now you know it's a tripartite coalition three uh, three parties. Everything goes through the cabinet Everything committees. Everything goes through the cabinet committees and three parties, which have a more formal style, I think, than Varadkar is is used to and, and prefers, actually. Yes, and it, and it'll be interesting to see to what extent he kind of holds that 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 um, that framework that Michal Martin established, which was, as as you say, formal and structured, and through the cabinet committee, as opposed to um, you know through the kitchen cabinet and and, and on on the couch in in in, uh, in the teacher's yeah. office. And I think he'll have to kind of keep to that formal style because of the demands of the the tripartite coalition. You know, these are three political parties that operate at a national level, have national constituencies to appeal to, identities and um, distinct policy platforms to an extent. Um, and you know that will be one of the open questions of this government. Um, against that, you know, his instinct is still strong. We have a we have a, a limited sample size for this. I mean, really, his only kind of media interventions have been the um, the pre Christmas roundtable with political correspondents, which provides much of the 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 uh, the, the carrying of water over the Christmas period. Um, and you know, I thought it was interesting that he was willing to go out and talk about um, how he didn't want a cliff edge at the end of February when the various kind of VAT cuts and excise cuts and so mm-hmm. on expire. Um, and you know that could well be seen as him... More COVID supports on the way. Yeah, exactly, but that, that could be seen as him kind of preemptively occupying that policy setting space several months in advance of, you know, the government uh, or the leaders having discussed that. And as we know, under Michal Martin, uh, one of the, the stamps of his leadership was that, you know, everything was triaged through that leaders meeting, through that Monday night meeting. Everything was thrashed out there in private where you weren't at risk as one person who sat in at the meetings uh, where you were told me where you weren't at risk of being quoted or misquoted. A shift, even if it is a subtle one, to a more kind of open-ended uh, kind of dialogue um, that plays out in public um, would be an interesting challenge for them, and I think it's it's one that perhaps they may have to they may have to address. But it's one that suits him as well because it allows him to get garner those headlines and to be kind of seen, I think, as 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 the man of action and uh, the person with uh, with solutions, which I think is a, is an important part of the political proposition that he's working on uh, when it comes to the next the next election. I should say more uh, cost of living supports on the way rather than COVID supports, God, God willing. Um, uh, Jared, final word um, from uh, you and on, on this and for uh, today's uh, instalment. Do you think that this change in style that, that Jack describes will be accompanied by any substantial changes in substance from the government under Varadkar? No, so the day after the budget, Leo Varadkar went on Morning Ireland and said if more was needed, it would be done. Now, in my day, a minister who did that the day after Budget Day would be fired. 
uh, because it's undermined the budget. We're now in the fourth year in a row when apparently what was said on budget day won't last the year because uh, fiscal strategy uh, will be reinvented. Uh, this is the, the style we're in. Uh, it's, it's, it's become completely unremarkable. Uh, how ultimately sustainable it is, is is quite a different matter. It would not su su survive a shock to, to the economy. Uh, in relation to Leo Varadkar's style, um, he has had a history over years of making sharp interventions that get him a lot of attention. The follow-through on those interventions is actually quite poor over time. So there's a lot of let's do this, I'll do that, and how's your father? But when you find out three, six, nine months later where we are on some of these issues, not a lot has happened. Uh, so he is a master at attention-seeking. Um, and that that is his political mo from the beginning, and it got him to the top. Um, he was he handled it masterfully from a national point of view. As Taoiseach, when COVID came the first time round, and he did the state some service for sure. The issue now is where in his second iteration as Taoiseach, that style swings as between opportunism and statesmanship, and he needs to be sure he knows the difference. And on that cautionary note, we'll bring this morning's deliberations to uh, close. My thanks to Jack Horgan Jones and to Jared Hallen. The episode was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. And let me entreat you as a New Year's resolution. If you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to the Irish Times at irishtimes.com. We'll be back next week, I hope. I'm Pat Leahy. We'll talk to you then.